0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Roy Gonzarski. Roy is CEO of MagniX, an electric propulsion technology company poised to disrupt the aerospace industry with its advanced electric engines that will enable transportation capabilities and services never possible before. Prior to MagniX, Roy was CEO of Bold IQ, a global provider of dynamic real-time scheduling optimization software. Under Roy's leadership, Bold IQ grew from a seed software startup to a profitable multi-million dollar SaaS company with customers worldwide and across industries. Before Bold IQ, Roy was with the Boeing family of companies for 13 years in continuously increasing roles of responsibility. Other experiences prior to Boeing include private investment banking, corporate finance, advertising, and the military. He is a graduate of Wharton's Advanced Management Program, earned an MBA from the University of Washington, and a BA in Economics from the University of Haifa. Welcome, Roy.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure
0: to be here. So good to see you. Well, we're doing this obviously on uh, audio. We'll do little clips on video. Um, But the people who get to see you are psyched because the airplane hitting your head is, (laughs) (laughs) in the background is super cool. Way better than my like weird books background. Makes me a little nerdy. You're (laughs) way cooler. Love it. Okay, so we're gonna start with rapid fire. Um, Okay, question one. What is your biggest pet peeve?
1: When people don't put the chairs back to a desk after leaving the meeting.
0: <laughs> that's a good one. I'll
1: remember that. really that. bothers me. That really? really? And I'll tell you why. When I walk into someone's conference room and the chairs are all scattered around the room, that tells me that the company isn't organized. Right oh, or wrong, that's what I get. And so I want to make sure- I get sure. that too,
0: actually. Yeah, I yeah. never thought about it, though.
1: It's like, what? no one could take a second of time to just put the chairs back into the conference room table, so that really bothers me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Given your industry, I'm curious, are you aisle or window seat?
1: Uh, Aisle.
0: Aisle seat, okay. Pool or ocean on vacation? Pool. Nice. What are three words that others would use to describe you?
1: Aggressive, creative, passionate. Nice.
0: Um, what is your best way that you like to relax?
1: Sit and have a good meal with my family. Nice.
0: And what is a current habit that you're trying to break?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> be, being on a uh, work phone all the time.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the kids and, uh, and the wife give you a little <laughs> shit for that. I get it. I get it. But you're passionate, right? That that, yes. uh, that adds up. You're passionate it, it's, and you're aggressive. It's your out
1: gossip. of excitement. Yeah. It's out yeah. of excitement, but yeah, it's something I'm trying to uh, reduce.
0: Yeah. Um, it's hard during COVID too, because there's no lines between work right. and home. Right. Yeah, exactly. I get that. Um, what is a bucket list place for you to go skydiving?
1: Wow, there's so many. Actually, my current bucket list for skydiving is to be the first person to jump out of an all-electric skydiving plane.
0: Ooh, and I don't care where. That makes sense. That would be super cool. I did do it once in Australia over the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, cool. Wow. And it was amazing. Yeah. Obviously tandem. Um, but yeah, very cool experience. I don't think I would do it now. I'm too wimpy. But when I was, <laughs> when I was 18, I had the courage to do it. Um, okay, so you grew up in Israel. Where in Israel did you grow up?
1: Haifa, the northern port city.
0: Oh, and then you went to University of Haifa, so that's good.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right.
0: I have not been to Haifa. What was it like there? Or what is it like there?
1: It's a, I'll call it a sleepy worker's town. So if you compare it to Tel Aviv, which is kind of the vibrant uh, financial capital, if you will, of the country, uh, Haifa was always the blue-collar workers' uh, city. So people would joke that at 8 p.m. everyone goes to sleep. Uh, all the, the restaurants and bars would close at nine because people are going to sleep for their next work shift in the morning. So it was a sleepy town, but gorgeous. It's on the hill, overlooking the Mediterranean Ocean, it's just beautiful.
0: Yeah, I've heard it's absolutely beautiful and worth a visit. But yes, I would not, definitely. I would not picture you being raised in that type of town, were you like an outlier with your energy, or is that just an Israeli thing, and it's like everybody had energy, they were just working in a sleepy town?
1: Yeah, so, so you know, sleepy is all relevant, right, <laughs> or relative, I'll say, uh, you know, when you compare sleepy. A sleepy Israeli is probably a very vibrant uh, U.S. Or, or European city, so it's all relative.
0: Totally. And how much of your identity is is rooted in being Israeli?
1: Uh, I would say all of it. Uh, yeah. I view myself an Israeli, even though at this point, you know, I'm an American citizen, this is home, uh, but if someone asks me, what am I? Uh, I am Israeli, even though I will say, now that I'm close to turning 50, I have spent less than half of my life in Israel. And yeah. yet that's still kind of where my teenage and young adulthood was, uh, where the most impression impressionable, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think for people that are not Israeli, or even for Jewish Americans, there's more of a link to the Jewish identity with Israel than there is for Israelis that I talk to. Is that true for you or no?
1: For me, no. Uh, I view them as one and the same. Uh, yep. I view my own uh, cultural upbringing as being a Jewish-Israeli, uh, and I don't distinguish between the two. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't call myself today a Jewish-American. Uh, I don't think there's such a thing. There's You're either American or you're not, and you're Jewish or you're not. Uh, or you're, you know, Christian, Catholic, et cetera. Uh, But being Israeli, there's something that's a little different about that because it is the one place in the world where Jews can call a home. The only one place, right? Christians, there are multiple countries around the world that are Christian faith-based. There are multiple ones that are Muslim faith-based. Jewish faith-based, there's only one, and that's Israel. Two, uh, depending on what paper you count uh, or read, there are anywhere between 13 to 18 million Jews worldwide, worldwide, 13 to 18 million Jews. And so to have a country that has about seven of them uh, is pretty amazing. And so to me, being Israeli and Jewish is is one of the same. We grew up in a very, uh, I'll call it, uh, not a religious home, but very much a a cultural home. So we would do the Friday evening uh, uh, Shabbat dinners. We would go to synagogue only during the holidays. for kosher, we maintain the very basic of rules. You know, we don't eat pork, we don't mix dairy and um, uh, meat together, but we do eat shrimp. And so it was really more about <laughs> tradition. Every
0: every every Jewish person has their own yeah. version of that. You're like, I like absolutely, <laughs>
1: absolutely, it, because it's really for us growing up, and now for me with my family now, it's really about maintaining that tradition and that Jewish uh, identity, as being part of Israeli, rather than you know, is it written as part of the law or not.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and where's your um, family from originally? Poland. Poland. Uh, both I think, my wife I think I'm and my family on like both that.
1: sides are are all 100% Polish. We did and, a we did a fun DNA test, you know, one of those uh, uh, DNA tests that you do uh, just to see. We did it for us and we did it for our dogs just to see, just to see what these DNA tests do. Uh, and I came out as 97% Ashkenazi Jew. So it's like the Polish of the Polish.
0: Yeah, and yeah. what about the dogs? <laughs>
1: the dogs both are 100% French Bulldog. <laughs> oh, I love French Bulldogs. Yeah, they're, bo- they're both mutants, though. Uh, both we, we took from a breeder, but they're kind of semi-rescues. One is too tall and too long for the breed, so he doesn't. He looks like a bigger, chunkier Boston Terrier, but yeah. he's 100% Frenchy. The other one was born three, per- uh, three weeks uh, premature and was put in an incubator, so he never matured or, or size, so he's about half the size of what a Frenchie should be. He has a, a tongue that's too long, a nose that's too short, and lungs that are too small. And so, you know, he snorts and moves on, but he's adorable.
0: Oh, God, my yeah. mom has a dog that has a tongue that's too long and just hangs out, and people call yep. him, people call the dog <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> oh, my go. God, that's that's so funny. We so you know are two
1: mutant <laughs> French bulldogs, we could have one perfect one.
0: <laughs> exactly, blend them together. <laughs> yeah. And so, you described yourself, I think you said, passionate, aggressive, and creative. Yep. And are those words that people in like fifth grade would have used to describe you?
1: Probably not. Uh, Up until the 11th grade, I was five foot one. I'm now six foot one. So in one summer, literally between uh, 10th and 11th grade, I grew a little over a foot. Wow, uh, which was crazy. I mean, I came to school and teachers didn't recognize me. I don't know what happened. Uh, m- maybe it was that stretching machine that my mom used. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was a, a fo- fairly quiet kid, uh, shy. You know, I was a, y- a year younger than all of my classmates as well. I, I jumped the class, I skipped the class in fourth grade. And yeah. so I was a year younger, s- much smaller, even for my age. Uh, and so I was a, a fairly quiet but always passionate, that, that I will say. I don't think that yeah. would have changed.
0: And did your confidence link to the growth spurt? Like, did you suddenly uh, blossom? No. My, my son had a big growth spurt, and I found that he came out of his shell a little bit more. Yeah, not really. I,
1: I was always confident. I just wasn't externally confident, if yeah. that makes sense. I, I never questioned kind of my ability, or could I do something or not, and so on. I just never externalized it. Uh, and I think in the military is actually where I first started to externalize it.
0: Yeah. And so confidence is oftentimes linked with extroversion, but it's not necessarily a correlation no, that not people at all. should yeah. make. And yeah. so are you an extrovert or an, an introvert? I am an extrovert. Yeah, I would have yeah. guessed that. I would but, have but I shocked. know a lot of
1: I know a lot of really confident people who are introverts and it's they're confident, they're successful, they just, you know, are more of the quieter type. So I, I don't yeah. think they're connected necessarily.
0: Yeah. And so most, um, obviously, people linked with Israel or or Jews in general know that it's part of um, being a citizen there that you join the army. And was that something that you were looking forward to and excited about or nervous about or both?
1: No, it it was just it wasn't something you even thought about. It was just normal. Uh, From the age of about 16 and a half, uh, there was no drinking problem in high schools in Israel, no drug problems. Uh, very little violence problems, because from the age of 16 and a half, all the boys are focused on, hey, how do I get into the best unit, at least in my school and my circle of friends, how do you get into the best unit in the military? And so you're working out, you're, uh, you know, getting together, working on problems, getting fit, uh, and you're focused on how do I get into this or that unit that you want to get into. Uh, And so there's no time for any other stuff. And so, you know, with my father being an officer in the military, you know, in his uh, time, uh, and participating in a few wars, et cetera, uh, and doing some amazing stuff, it was just natural progression to grow up in a family where your dad was in the military, your mom was in the military, in fact, that's where your parents met uh, and eventually got married, uh, and your dad did reserves until he was at the age of 45, and every month he would go put his uniform on and go to reserve, including fighting in, the, in, the, uh, in a war uh, in, the late, in the early 80s as a reservist. It was just normal. And so when it came my turn, you know, you just go because that's what everyone does. You don't even think about it.
0: And when you're, I mean, because I'm connected to this through Brothers for Life, the organization with wounded soldiers from Israel and some of them got wounded in the reserves, is that something that you like say goodbye to your parents and you're scared shitless that like, it's a scary thing? Are they on the front lines?
1: Yeah, you you don't, again, you don't really think about it because it's normal. I mean, I, I think back now, About things that I did when I was in the military, and it's like, wow, that was dangerous. Uh, I could have not come home from that, but that's now looking at it back, you know, in history. But Mm -hmm. then it was just what you did, be it reserve or not. I was in reserves until the day before my wedding. Uh, I was uh, uh, up north in Israel, uh, you know, guarding the border up until the day before my wedding. Uh, That was just normal. And so you never thought about it, oh, you know, what, could something happen or not? It's just part of what you do.
0: Mm-hmm. And how, how has that experience being a child of somebody who was an officer in the military? I mean, I know in the U.S., if, if that was the case, I mean, maybe this is a stereotype, but I would think that the person would be raised with a certain level of discipline and structure and, um, yeah, I mean, just discipline and structure versus a different experience? Uh, So
1: so I I would say two things. One, you can't compare the experience in Israel to what happens in the U.S. And the reason is there is no stereotype for someone who's gone to the military in Israel because everyone's gone to the military, literally everyone, men, women, everybody. And so as opposed to the U.S. where less than 5% of the population have ever served, uh, which is, you know, its own conversation, its own podcast on why that is. So you develop a stereotype because it's a very small minority of the group. So, you kind of look for commonalities. Oh, if you're in the military, you must have been in a disciplined family. You must have been traveling around maybe, or, you know, something like that. Uh, and and maybe there it'll be natural to follow in your parents' footsteps and go, in Israel, it's not necessarily the case at all. Again, everyone goes to the military like everyone goes to high school. It's just mm-hmm. a normal thing. And so, you'll have, from the disciplined families to the completely relaxed and undisciplined families, uh, all of maybe who have served in the same unit. In fact, That's one of the amazing things, when you join the military in Israel at the age of 18, the only common thing you have with the people around you are the fact that you're all wearing the same uniform. Mm -hmm. Other than that, you could have come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, heritage backgrounds. We talked about Ashkenazi Jews versus uh, Sephardic Jews, uh, Jews who came from Africa or Jews who came from Poland, uh, and you'll all mix together, no matter what high school you went to, no matter what grades you got, nobody cares but Mm -hmm. you're in the same unit going to fight for the same cause uh, or going to do whatever the same thing is that you're going to do. It's an amazing uh, breaker of barriers in a society when everyone has gone through it. And Mm. you can see that in the society, right? I mean, it's a very different uh, view than uh, what happens in many other countries where it's a volunteer, small group of people that go versus just everybody goes. So to that end, I think it's an amazing social aspect. I I believe, if the US had, at the age of 18, some sort of service, it doesn't have to be even military, but right. some sort of service to the greater good, I think this country would be 100 times more amazing than it already is, by the way. And it is I, an amazing I agree.
0: Country. I completely agree. I mean, obviously, as a mother, that's like scary. But I completely, completely agree. And I, I see the pride in all of my Israeli friends. And I think that it's linked. It's like we fought for our freedom. We fought for our country. And, um, and it's just in the blood, in the DNA. So, And, and,
1: and that's, that's one extreme. In the U.S. it could be go work at hospitals, sanitary, pick up garbage, do something for a year even. It doesn't have to be three years. Or for one year, do something that is purely for the greater good, not for yourself. And that puts so much perspective for people yeah. to think about, wow, there is something bigger than me here. And yes. there's nothing wrong with actually serving it. It takes away ego, it takes away pride. It t- it's purely about what are you doing to serve the greater good? Even if it's you know, cleaning toilets in a hospital, that's fine. That means you've done something that's bigger than yourself and you've contributed to society.
0: I really like that. And so are the bonds that you made in the army lifelong friendships?
1: I met my wife through one of my unit members. Uh, who introduced nice. me to her. So clearly, uh, there was some value there. Uh, I don't know that she'll agree, but, but, <laughs> but there was some value that came out of it. So yeah, absolutely, it's, it's lifelong.
0: Yeah, and how about you? Like, how have what kind of lessons did you learn about leadership, uh, time management, things that have helped you along the way in your career?
1: The, the first thing I would say is perspective. When you have to make decisions and the consequences, someone dies, that's put a, that puts a very different perspective than you have to make a decision, and if you're wrong, you're over budget. Or you get a, a grade that isn't as good. Uh, going to university after the military uh, is when I did my undergraduate and then my MBA and so on, is a very different experience than I see here, kids, including my daughter, doing it you know, without the military service. Okay. You know, grades are, oh my God, what if, what if I fail? And when you come after, you know, five years, as I did of military service in, in, in combat units, it's like, what if you fail? Mm-hmm. So you'll get a bad grade in this class. It puts a lot of perspective. So that's one thing uh, I learned in the military. The second is uh, working with the resources that you have. It would be nice, you know, we sometimes had some uh, uh, drills that we do with American units that would come uh, either with the Sixth Fleet or otherwise, and we'd get to do some interchange with them. And we'd see the equipment that they had and the resources. And it was like, oh, my God, what we could do if we had equipment like that. But we didn't. And so you learn to make with what do with, with what you have, right? And so this notion of resourcefulness and what really is good enough and what will help you get the mission done and everything else shouldn't be spent time on, those types of things become critical. Getting straight to the point. Uh, decisions in motion is a big one. You know, I like to tell folks at work, the idea is and we use this now all the time at Magnix as well. There's three key concepts to continuous follow. Details, transparency, and action. Always pay attention to the details, because if you don't, that's when mistakes happen. Be it in the military, you know, you'll shoot the wrong person, you'll bomb the wrong area, you'll go into the wrong area. So details are important. Transparency is how everyone knows what's going on. There's no such thing as need to know basis. I I don't buy into that. I never did, I never had to experience that as a need to know basis. At the company, at MagniX, for example now, everyone knows everything about the company except each other's salaries. That's not mine to share, that's personal information. Employees can share it if they want, but I don't. But everything else, how much money the company has in the bank, what customers are saying or not saying, where we're successful or unsuccessful, down to what employees are making mistakes and why, we share that because that makes us stronger. And then the third one is action. You can sit around collecting details and doing analysis for years and not actually do anything. Or you can start to move forward uh, and then change things while you're you're moving. And so decisions in motion is something that I brought uh, from the military, whereas just to use an extreme analogy, as you're running to that target uh, and you're trying to take it and suddenly things are changing around you as it's happened, You can't just say, oh, wait a minute, Uh, can you guys stop shooting for a second? I need to rethink about my plan and gather more info. Oh, now let's continue. Like, no, the battle around you is continuing. You have to be able to assess, in the case Mm -hmm. of the military, in seconds and milliseconds what's going on and make decisions with terrible consequences. In the case of work, it could be days, weeks, months, but the idea is you don't just stop everything to try and make a better decision. You do everything in motion, and if you do that, you're taking action, you're making forward progress, but that doesn't come at the account of not paying attention to details. It just means what are the pertinent details for me to take action? And one of the ways to do that is to be transparent. So those three go together. And I definitely picked that up in the military.
0: I love these. I think just that alone, we could stop the podcast and be like, oh, Well, thank these you very are, much. You know, yeah, thank I you appreciate very much. Good it. to see you. No, but I would think that that would create a, an environment as far as a culture that's not bureaucratic and that teaches people to trust their instincts and to go with their gut and be like, hey, you've been hired here. That's like half the battle to get it through the, the process and to be selected as an employee would be a very high bar. And then once you're in, it's like, hey, I hired you for the mission or for the, the purpose that you serve in your specific role. You stay in your lane and you, it's not bureaucratic where you have to stop and ask permission. It's like, go, bias and, toward and, action.
1: And, and the key is, You know, there's a few things. Again, be transparent. If you've made a mistake, that's okay. Uh, You know, I, I don't like the notion that people say, oh, startups, failing is great. No, it's not. No one likes to fail. No one likes to make mistakes. It's terrible. But the notion is if you're going to make a mistake and you should expect mistakes will happen, then at least let's learn from it and grow from it. But let's not lie to ourselves and say, oh, failure is great. I love failure. No, no one loves failure. You love the lessons you get out of failure, and you love the fact that you can pass those lessons on and maybe avoid someone else having the same failure. But no one likes to make mistakes. But the idea is if we do, let's be transparent about it and own it. Hey, guys, here's what happened. I made this mistake. Here's what I thought at the time. Knowing what I know today, I would have either made the same decision, which to me is a a bad mistake because then you haven't learned anything, or knowing what I know now, I would have made a different decision. Great. How do we make sure to know what we know now later on? which is kind yeah. of a growing mistake. And so those are the types of things we try to focus on.
0: And how much of your leadership style is based on, like you said, collecting the data, having that luxury to be able to do that in a, in a startup um, versus using your gut and you know all of the things you've learned along the way, or is it a combo?
1: I think it's a combo, but I would say if you asked my team, they would probably say most of my decisions are based on gut. So I'll collect enough info that I feel is necessary to make the decision at the time. I will continue to collect. And when I say I, it could be team members, right? Who continue to collect info. And the second the information changes that anyone feels might change a decision, we bring it up again. The one thing I or my team are not afraid to do is say, we've made a decision. Now we have new information come to light. Let's change the decision. It's okay. Uh, I used to work at a company where the, there was a saying, the plan is the plan and the plan doesn't change.
0: Well, are you talking about the Boeing companies? Uh, uh, no, other company. Other company, okay. The plan is about the plan it. and the plan yeah. doesn't
1: change. It's like, No, yeah. it doesn't. Of course the plan changes.
0: Yeah, if you got to
1: Yeah, if things around you have changed, why would you stick to something that you decided on before where you didn't have all the info? Change yeah. the plan. That's okay. Now, yes. you have to keep track of it. Again, that's transparency, right? Keep track of it. Why did you change the plan? What's changed? And not just, oh, I feel like it. But to that end, changing decisions along the way is an okay, in fact, a correct thing to do when the world around you is changing.
0: Yeah. Also, also great little nugget. I love that. And so what ended up bringing you to the U.S.? Was, did you think that was going to be just a quick thing for studies? or And then here you are 25 years later?
1: Not, not only did we think that that was an ultimatum I had for my wife uh, when she came with me is we're going, to, we, it was to go to graduate school. I was very interested in doing an m uh, after we kind of sold a small company in Israel and made no money out of it. But the experience was phenomenal. And so I wanted to do M&A. So my father told me, you know, the place to do MA and and on a global scale to study it is in the U.S., right? That's where all the big deals get made. And so, you know, we, we came from a, I'll call it the lower middle class of family. And so I couldn't afford to go to the big schools like you know Harvard or Chicago or Wharton where you really go and do M&A. And so we looked at, I'll call it second tier schools, kind of ranked 20 to 50 in uh, the uh, US News uh, uh, and World Report. Uh, and by the way, back then it was all mail, right? Not internet or anything. And so we asked for 15 brochures from different business schools, one of them being the UW. Uh, and my wife said, uh, there's two ultimatums. We had just been married a few months earlier. So there's two ultimatums that if you want this to happen, need to be in place. One is I get to pick the school, as in my wife, uh, which, you know, is fair. I, I didn't care which of the 15 schools, so that was a fair trade. And the other was we're going for two years, and after the big, we go back home. So those were the two ultimatums. Uh, and so true story, we got 15 brochures by mail, of course, uh, back from the universities. And we put them all on the bed without opening any one of them. And a not, my wife, looks at the 15 and said, this is the one we're going to. And it was the University of Washington uh, Business School Uh, teaches you the power of marketing and branding. The front cover of the brochure is the quad on campus, which is the four, uh, you know, 1800s aged red brick buildings surrounding this uh, walkway of cherry trees in bloom during the spring and blue skies. Just phenomenal, phenomenal place. Now nowhere did it say two weeks in the year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, right. I went to University of Washington, so I know exactly the quad. Yeah, and the, the, gorgeous,
1: the, the, right? Just gorgeous. Absolutely
0: gorgeous. I'm surprised they didn't show the water in the mountains, because to me, that's just the epic part of Seattle. And so did you like it when you got here?
1: We loved it. It was, you know, we, we landed here in August of 1997.
0: Like sight unseen.
1: So we didn't know, not just sight unseen. We had not known about anything in Seattle. The old, we watched Sleepless in Seattle with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan yeah. in order to prepare. That was it. We didn't know Boeing was here. We didn't know there was such a thing as Microsoft uh, or that Starbucks was starting up. Literally, we knew nothing about the area. You know, when you're in Israel, what you know about the US is New York, LA, Dallas, because of the TV series. <laughs> and, and that's about it, right? You don't know anything unless you happen to travel and, and neither my wife nor I, traveled a lot in the U.S., and so we didn't know Seattle at all, but it was the one university my wife picked, so we got in, and we came. And we arrived, and the day we landed, the front page of the Seattle Times was that Seattle uh, had just won the world's record's largest apple pie baking contest. (laughs) I, I remember this vividly because we had come in 1997. It was a time of a lot of terror attacks in Israel, a lot of buses being blown up by terrorists in Israel. And then you land here in Seattle and the front page news is Seattle wins the world's largest apple pie bank company. And we thought, my God, this is heaven. If yeah. this is what's on front page news, this is a great place to be.
0: That is hilarious. And so did you think when you did uh, M&A and, and, well, you did some you know, investment banking, it sounds like in finance, yep. that that was gonna be your career? Or because to me, that's an incredible foundation for any career.
1: So I, I thought that would be my career. My dream was to eventually one day kind of work in a Wall Street type investment bank. Uh, and I started doing kind of some M&A work uh, during my first and second year of the MBA program. Uh, but I very quickly realized that actually what I liked about the M&A world from when we sold a small company in Israel was being involved in the deal. That was what I liked. And the fact that, role. yeah, that, that we were part of the, operating structure of what the deal was about, right. whereas when you're doing MA from an investment banking perspective, it's like an outsider view. You don't totally. really have skin in the game. And I didn't really like that. And so then you know, towards the end of the, the MBA program, when Boeing came to, to uh, school and said, hey, we're looking for someone who can do M&A, but part of our business uh, and do it in Asia." Uh, That was kind of a cool fit. And I was able to convince my wife to allow me to apply for the job because we thought, "Ah, what are the chances we'll get it, right? We don't even have a work visa. Uh, And Boeing, or then the the subsidiary of Boeing that I joined, Flight Safety Boeing, offered me a job for a year under the student OPT, the uh, optional training program that you can stay after your student visa. You can stay for a year in the U.S. to kind of practice what you learned. So Boeing offered me a job for that one year. And we said, hey, you know what, let's do that. My wife had just Uh, started doing a job in the metals industry that she really liked, Uh, and she was enjoying the job, and said, you know, what's one more year? We'll go back to Israel with an MBA and a year of experience working at the Boeing company, that would be pretty cool. And that one year turned into three, five, 13 at Boeing, and now eventually 25 here in the U.S. We're citizens, you know, three kids, this is now home. And so uh, it's been a pretty amazing journey.
0: And you think that this is, um, even once the kids are out of the house, uh, you'll stay?
1: Yeah, this is home now.
0: This is home now. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your experience at Boeing. I mean, also another great foundation to to be at such a huge, phenomenal company. Um, what was the company culture like and what would you have, I guess, changed? Because you've had an opportunity to create your own culture as CEO, um, what thing, kind of nuggets did you take away? I always ask Amazon and Microsoft people that, uh, these questions because the cultures are so strong.
1: Yeah, it, it, so, so that's one thing uh, I learned. Culture is strong. You can't just create a few slides, bring in a consultant, and say, oh, we're going to change our culture. Now yeah. we'll be a nimble company. Now we'll be less bureaucratic. It doesn't work. Cultures are the uh, basis and the foundation, as you said, of any company, and it's hard to change culture. So be very careful of the culture you create or support, or endorse. So that's one thing I learned, that what you do is critical in the eyes of every employee and they see how leaders behave, they see how leaders talk, they see what leaders do, and that becomes part of the culture. And to later say, ah, I don't like this culture, let's change it, is a very difficult thing to do, especially right. when you have tens of thousands and over 100,000 people, like someone like the Boeing uh, or Microsoft or Amazon do, That's hard. If you have 20 people and you want to change your culture, it doesn't make it very easy, but it's easier because Mm -hmm. it's self-contained. When you talk about tens of thousands of people, or even thousands, to change a culture is difficult. So that's one thing I learned, is when I ever was planning on leaving the bone company, it was to make sure that culture is a foundational element of whatever I do. So that's one thing I learned. Uh, The other is transparency. Uh, The lack of transparency creates rumors, creates fear, creates people setting up the worst possible scenario and then fulfilling it because nothing is telling them that's not true. And so that's where I found that being transparent down to every single employee is absolutely critical. There is nothing our company does that an employee shouldn't know about. We sign NDAs with customers. That's right. Those NDAs cover our employees as well. So we make sure employees know, guys, gals, This is under NDA, I'm sharing this with you because this company is trusting us with this info, let's not let it out. But everyone gets to know what we're talking about. And so from that perspective, I found that that creates a lot more buy-in than, oh, I'm not on the need to know basis and so I don't get to know. Mm -hmm. Now there are things that legally we may be prohibited to share uh, for whatever reason, or there's a time window to share them, that's okay. But then you do it within what's allowed but you don't keep something secret because you think someone isn't worthy of that level of information. So that's an important thing I learned.
0: And did you feel like you fit in there? Because given that culture is so important, were you able to impact your direct teams in that way that might be a little different than the broader company culture?
1: I hope so. Uh, You know, I spent 13 years at the company. I love Boeing. It's an amazing company. It was for me a phenomenal place to learn things about corporate America about what scale looks like, right? And working now at magnix we have 50 plus employees. It's amazing to know what are the both positive and negative things that can happen when you're at a tens of thousands of size, and how do you now think about those things? So that was an amazing opportunity. To work at Boeing, I got to do things in places in the world I couldn't dream of going to, or doing types of deals that, Only at a place like Boeing would you ever do, setting up companies in different countries, setting up joint ventures, partnerships. I mean, the amazing stuff we got to do was really cool, Mm -hmm. but eventually it got to the point that two things happened uh, after these uh, 13 years. One, I figured out that I would not change the Boeing company. No matter how hard I tried or how right I thought I may be at any case in point, I will not change Boeing. Boeing will either change me or I will be frustrated. As my father told me at some point, you can choose to be the bamboo or the bird. It's like, what? It's like, well, you can either sway with the wings, but you're still firm, but the winds will sway you and just you let them fly by. Or if you don't like it, be the bird and fly away from that bamboo forest. But don't complain about not being able to fly away if you can, and don't complain about the winds, they're happening. And so that was one of the lessons I took from my dad was, if you have something that you're complaining about, give a suggestion and do something about it. Don't just complain and sit quietly. Right. And so that's a lesson I try to teach my kids. Uh, you know, for everyone else employees as well. If you have something to say, say it, but come with an alternative.
0: Yeah. So, I always say to my kids, like, they already know this. They know what's about to come out of my mouth, because it's <laughs> very, very common for me to say, don't play victim. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. a huge pet. That's probably my biggest pet peeve, is it's like something's hap- everything's happening to me. Yep. It's like, yep. really? Like, you play a role in everything.
1: Yeah, including thinking. deciding to stay or not. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, that, that's a really important thing that I took for myself.
0: And so is, was there a moment in time you said there was two things, like kind of realizing the, the bamboo or, yep. the, or the bird,
1: yep. which and I love? The, the, second, the second thing was for me, I felt like I wasn't having a big enough impact on my place of work and what I was actually doing. Mm -hmm. I felt like I don't want to use a cog in the wheel because that's not true. Uh, I did have impact in my surrounding environment. But when you talk about a scale like that, if I was 20% better in my results and there were years I was, nobody cared. Right. Ah, 20%. Well, right,
0: it's not going to impact. It's not like yeah. the company is going
1: to be up 20%. Right. Yeah, exactly. Relative. I mean, yeah. it, you're 20% better, but in a hundred billion dollar business, Roy, right? yeah. that's fine. Now, yeah. if I were to take this business unit and put it outside of the company, that would be amazing. Yeah. But within Boeing, hey, eh, you know, not a big yeah. deal. Yeah. And it, and and just the same. If I was 20% under, yeah, let's put it in Good this thing. pocket. Let's hide. There wasn't this impact. That was one two. I didn't feel like I was really making a difference. yeah, And not just of the Boeing company, but just in general. I just didn't feel like I was making a difference. yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I felt like it was time for me to look for what else is out there.
0: Right. And so you could have, if you just said, my driver is wanting to make an impact, you could have gone and been a, uh, you know, on the leadership team of a smaller company, but instead you decided that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, right?
1: Well, not really. Uh, I don't define myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, the entrepreneur in my mind, and this is my own definition, is the person who comes up with an idea yeah. and finds a way to make it real. I didn't come up with the idea for Bold IQ, nor did I come up with the idea for Magni X. And so I'm you've a, been
0: a, like a hired gun.
1: Yeah, I'm a mercenary entrepreneur, <laughs> if, if you will. I
0: get it. No, I get it, because I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur's organization, and part of the um measurement of who gets in is that you have to have started the company right. and not necessarily come up with the idea, but well, I guess those two would be linked. Um, yeah, I, so I
1: joined Bold, Bold IQ when there were six mathematicians and physicists there who had this piece of software. I was like, okay, what do we do with this? Great. Mm-hmm. Let's make a company out of it and grow it. Uh, but I didn't come up with the idea or nor did I start the company. So yeah. I wouldn't consider myself an entrepreneur so much as a, a, an aggressive growth driver.
0: Yeah. And so what would you have considered your Bold IQ experience as a successful one? I think so. I think so. And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I
1: I learned uh, quite a bit uh, that one, a a very small group of passionate people with very limited resources with focus can do amazing things. You don't have to have the resources of the Boeing company to change the world. That I learned, which was a a super important lesson because you always think, ah, you know, what, what can I do compared to someone like Boeing or Amazon or Microsoft? You can do a lot with a group of really passionate people, limited resources, focused, and some piece of defendable technology, something. Software, hardware, idea, something that you can actually defend, you can actually do amazing things. So that's one uh, thing I learned, which, which is carried uh, as well to Magnex and to aviation now, uh, really, really critical. And the second thing is focus. When you're a big company like Boeing or Microsoft or Amazon, you can do like, you know, a million projects that seem interesting because you have giant amount, enormous amounts of people. And you say, hey, the two of you, why don't you work on that hobby project for a second and let's see if something comes out of it. And you can do a lot of these things. It doesn't cost you a lot. uh, And you can try them. And if they fail, eh, no big deal. When you're a company of six people, 10 people, 20 people, you can't do that. And so you can't be distracted as a startup, at least in my experience, by shiny things that come around. Oh, look, that could be interesting. Let's try that as well. Like, well, if you try that, you don't try this, you don't Mm -hmm. finish this, you don't do this. And so then you're losing focus. And as a startup, uh, it's really easy to lose that focus for money. Well, I don't have a lot of money. Here's a person, company, group, Offering me some money to do this side project, it doesn't really align with my long-term goals. But hey, I'll get some money now in the short term. That'll help me get to my long-term goals. Right. Well, That's I'm where also, you start to fall off the wagon, right? Because yeah, you're doing right. that once, and then you do it a second time. Then you're three years later. You're always doing these little things, but you've never achieved your long-term goals. We didn't. Goals.
0: We didn't do like a big, a big shift and movement. Right. And so, doesn't right. that get impacted by who's on your board and who, who your, your investors are? Who your investors yep. are. Yeah. And so. How much weight did that play into, and how was that experience? What, what makes a good board member, do you feel? I think a
1: good board member, and I see that at okay, BoldEQ, MagniX, X, Eviation, I think there's a few aspects, and board member isn't necessarily investor, right? They could be right. different. I think, one, board members need to be people who can add value to your company. If they can't add value, just being a representative and an investor does not make you a good board member. It just makes you a representative of your investor. And I think that's a big uh, mistake that both companies and investors make. oh, well, I have to have someone on the board. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you have a right to have someone on the board. And if you do, at least put someone who can add value to the company.
0: Right, either through introductions or- Or or knowledge, right? Maybe this this is someone who's
1: been experienced in running a business or someone who knows the software, the hardware, the financial aspects. Mm -hmm. Something that when the CEO has questions or challenges, the board can actually answer them or challenge them, right? Mm -hmm. You also want a board that's not afraid to challenge the CEO and say, hey, why are you taking this strategic direction? It's like, well, you know, here's what I think. Uh, Actually, no, from our collective experience, we think you should do this, Great, But the collective experience can't be, well, I invested in a bunch of companies and I had some good exits, so I must be smart. No, that means you invested in a bunch of companies and had a few good exits. It doesn't mean you're smart For my company, right? And so I think that's an important aspect of how you choose your investors and your board members to make sure they can add value to the company.
0: Yeah. And so, how much do you think um, that there's a kind of business playbook, and how relevant or how important is it to be passionate specifically about the industry? Or is it like, hey, I I learned aviation and now I'm going to potentially 3.0 or 5.0 learn a whole new industry? some people, like in recruiting, they'll want industry expertise. So what's your take on that?
1: I would say it depends. Uh, I think, fr- first of all, being passionate about what you do. doesn't have to be the industry. Being passionate about what you do, I think, is critical to the success of the company, from the CEO all the way down to every single employee. If you're not passionate about what you do, it doesn't matter. And being passionate about the industry doesn't, isn't enough, right? I'm not passionate about aerospace. If I am, then if I made nuts and bolts that go on a plane, would that be enough for me? Not for me. I'm passionate about what I'm doing, which was either creating software that would help airlines be efficient or creating motors that would help airlines go to green, you know, zero emissions, lower cost, or build an electric airplane. That I'm passionate about. It's not Aerospace, per se, it just happens right. to be- What you're building common, at
0: MagniX.
1: Yeah, th- there, yeah, it happens to be a common theme of aerospace because aerospace, I think, is an amazing industry mm-hmm. in that it's global, uh, it's ever-changing, it's growing. So I love that aspect of it, and it gets to connect people worldwide. It and
0: it'll be, be around forever. It's not one of these, like, flash in the so. pants. Yeah, <laughs> and so, what, so what's the business model for MagniX?
1: Well, for MagniX specifically, we're an electric propulsion company. So the business model is to provide- propulsion systems to either, uh, first and foremost, manufacturers of airplanes who are designing electric airplanes for our future, so provide them with that propulsion. Existing airplane manufacturers who want to offer customers an electric version of their existing uh, uh, plane. So imagine I used to have a Kia Soul Electric before I got a a Kia Nero Electric. And so the Kia Soul you can get in a gas version or an electric version. They're both a Kia Soul. So imagine an existing airplane manufacturer that says, hey, if you need long range and you need high payload and electric isn't there yet, you can get the gas model. But if Mm -hmm. you're good with the shorter range, smaller payload, but you like the plane, I'll give you the electric version. So that's the second kind of business model or or path to market. And then the third is retrofits. So imagine existing airlines that have these propeller planes. They love the planes like Harbor Air, for example, in Vancouver, uh, Canada. They love their airplanes. These are 50- and 60-year-old airplanes. They're old, clunky, you know, heavy airplanes, but they're super for what they do. But what they don't like is the fact that their engines are gas-guzzling, emission-creating, maintenance-prone, expensive. They don't like that, but they love the plane. And there's no reason for them to invest millions of dollars in buying a new plane. Then why not just re-engine, if you will, or what we call magnify these planes. Mm -hmm. Cut out the gas guzzling dirty part, put in nice clean electric uh, propulsion systems and start flying. So that's the third type of go-to-market we have.
0: Wow. My brain is like spinning right now because I'm thinking like the barrier to entry for people who are flying private (laughs) could change because the biggest part of that is the gas, the cost of the gas, which I don't know if people even realize, and the maintenance. And so it sounds like you're really poised to truly disrupt the aerospace and defense industry. Um, Do you have competitors? I'm sure you do.
1: Yeah, we we have a a few. Uh, There's a small company in the UK called Rolls-Royce, one of the (laughs) world's biggest engine companies for planes. A small company out of France called Safran, one of the world's largest Uh, Aerospace Electric Company, so yeah, there are a few competitors, uh, but uh, we don't worry about that. We really worry about, again, focus. What are we doing? How do we maintain our competitive advantage? How do we provide value to our customers? And that will take care of itself. Uh, and, And you're right. We are, and this is our only focus. So as opposed to these other companies who, this may or may not be a kind of a side hobby, right? All of my money is made out of internal combustion gas based jet engines and yeah the future may or may not be electric so why don't we have some people do that i'm less concerned about that than us which is if we don't succeed in what we're doing we all go home you know with our tail between our legs and our heads uh, held low so we will make sure to succeed because this is our future and mm-hmm. i don't mean as just jobs i mean as this is our future right it's we can't sure have you our are
0: changing the world talk yeah, about
1: that. We, we can we can't have our kids and our grandkids flying on internal combustion airplanes. We can't do that. Whether you believe in global warming or, you know, environmental impact really doesn't matter. I I really don't care if you believe in it or not. What I think we all agree on is that when we stand next to one of these propeller planes and they turn on the engine, those fumes coming out aren't good for our health. Whether you would think about the impact globally, and I had plenty of papers showing how it impacts the environment. Uh, Absolutely.
0: Anybody who doesn't believe in it, I think, is just asleep or not believing in, they're just like not checked into reality. And but so perhaps, what But we, I'm saying, even leave that aside. Yeah. No one's gonna work.
1: deny that it's bad for your health, right? Yeah, and so for sure. we have to change the way these airplanes work. And, and the beauty of electric aviation is it tackles both aspects. We're not Greenpeace. This isn't about the environment. I'm not doing this to save the environment. I'm doing this because it will change the way we fly. It will mean that aviation, can now be on demand versus on supply like it is now. My eldest daughter goes to Washington State University, studies mechanical engineering there, super product. It's 230 miles away from Seattle, from where we live. 230 miles. I could, when I wanna go visit her, I can either drive there, and it's a five hour drive there and five hour drive back, or I could do what normal people should do in 2020, and that's fly. But to fly from SeaTac to Pullman, 230 miles away, it's a 45-minute trip, is over $400 return per person. So if I want to take my wife and two other kids, that's almost two grand just to go 230 miles. So right. guess what? We don't do it. Guess what? She doesn't fly back to visit us either. We drive the five hours there and the five hours back. And
0: it's not a a beautiful drive either.
1: I mean, forget beautiful. Yeah. It's just, it's 10 hours.
0: Yeah, it's inefficient.
1: Sitting in a car when you could fly. But the challenge is operating planes is so expensive that these airlines have no choice but either not fly there at all. So there are 10,000 airports in the United States alone. Only 600 get used by the airlines. 600 out of 10,000. And so we're destroying this ability to be connected easily. Why can't I jump to a 200-mile town for a weekend or for a day to do some wine tasting in Wenatchee? And why shouldn't it cost me $50 instead of $400? Because it can't. So electric aviation is so cheap compared to gas-based aviation because of fuel and maintenance that you're getting rid of. It provides the ability for operators to say, let's make an on-demand world that's for the average person, not just for the rich and famous who can fly in a private jet.
0: Right, and by the and, way, zero emissions. I love, I love this, and I'm beyond personally rooting for you because I want access immediately. <laughs> immediately. So tell us, like timeline, what we can expect for like the future of aviation as far as when this becomes mainstream. If you could, like, m- you know, wave a magic wand.
1: Yeah. So I think there should be a few steps. Uh, 2022, you're going to start seeing the first small electric planes start to fly around with passengers on them. And, guess you'll, is, and
0: you'll jump out of it.
1: <laughs> uh, I hope so. I hope I'll jump out of it before that, before they're certified yeah. part of our test program, but we'll see if that's allowed or not. Yeah. But 2022, so two years from now, you're going to start seeing the first inklings of commercial aviation flight, five, nine passenger type propeller
0: planes. Yeah.
1: 2025, I think you'll start to see a few hundred of them flying around, still in niche markets, you know, like Seattle in the islands, Vancouver in the islands, Northeast islands of the United States, Caribbean, so it'll be small niches. By 2030, you're gonna start seeing hundreds of these small electric planes fly everywhere across the U.S. and Europe, uh, and I'll say uh, Asia as well, and you'll start to see the first larger airplanes, 40 and 50 passenger-sized airplanes, start to fly electric, with the one difference, instead of being batteries that provide electricity, it'll be hydrogen fuel cells that provide electricity, but they'll still be electric planes. So by 2030, this will be a normal thing. And if you think about it, 10 years, that's nothing. It's really
0: nothing. We'll still be like a young-ish. Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. I may have lost some hair by then, but you know, I'm not too worried.
0: Yeah, and so how has COVID, I guess this whole pandemic, impacted your company personally?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting time. So one, it slowed everything down. Right? I mean, when people have to work from home, even though it's doable, when you're building what we're building, which is
0: hardware, yeah. it's a little
1: hard to build a motor at home.
0: Are those people in person? Like my yep. biotech friends, their, their lab employees are in person, yes. and then the, the ancillary, like you know, accounting, Finance and HR, they're and, at home.
1: Yeah, so you, even our motor engineers, for example, or our power electronics engineers, if they're not working on hardware, they're rather doing analysis on the computer, et cetera, they work at home. Yeah. Where they need to work hardware, they come in. So for example, when we were building the uh, e-caravan, the world's largest commercial electric plane that flew this past May, it was all done during COVID. So we couldn't have more than five people at once. They all kept distance, all wearing masks, all yeah. going through temperature checks, but we were able to do that. So it slowed us down a bit, but we we're still yeah. able to do it. So that's one impact. Uh, the second is our future customer base today is at risk right? All these little operators are right now struggling to survive in 2020. Now, they all believe that by 2022, 2023, when we're being ready to go to market, this will be past us and they'll be back. But today, that's hard to see, right? So, people look at the doom and gloom of aerospace while we look at the future. So, from that perspective, actually, COVID didn't hit us as bad as the rest of the aviation industry because it's not like we lost revenues, We were only planning on having revenues in 2022, 2023 anyway. And so we didn't have as an immediate impact as the rest of the industry did. But I will say one of the biggest impacts of COVID is that people have come to realize what clean air smells and feels like. Because less cars are driving around and hardly any planes are flying around, suddenly there were pictures of, oh, this is what the the skyline of LA and New York and Beijing look like. Wow, look, there's actually a city there. because there was no smog or emissions coming out of these planes, cars, etc. And so that's one impact that people now see this actually can be better. So that's one. Two, if you have to go fly now, if you had an alternative of let's go to a major hub airport with thousands of other people, stand in line for an hour, get on a tube and sit in the middle seat, and it doesn't matter what people say about the air filtration in the plane, You'll still be sitting in the middle seat next to another person next to you after being at the airport for for hours and have to drive to that main airport only to get to another airport and drive another 45 minutes to your destination. Will you choose that if the flight is not transatlantic, transpacific, transcontinental? If you're flying for an hour, you might as well drive. Or what if your alternative was go to the airfield that's 20 minutes away from you, go with 20 other people, not 2,000 other people get on a small plane with five, nine, 19 passengers, everyone's in a window seat, fly for the same 45 minutes or hour, land in another airfield that only has another 20 people in it and go to your destination. Yeah. And knowing that you're doing it at 40, 50% of the cost and zero emission on the environment. I think people will choose that. And so COVID oh, is accelerating this thought process of not only aviation can change, maybe it should change. Mm-hmm.
0: And so are you recruiting right now for your yes, for your company we are. and yeah, how we are. has that been impacted by COVID and, and and have you onboarded anybody during this time?
1: Yes, we have. Actually, the, the our recent I want to say 10 employees were all inter recruited, interviewed and hired without ever meeting in person. Beyond video conference of course, but never meeting in person. One of them came and at some point we talked and he said, "You know, I didn't even think of the fact that I never saw that you had a real office." <laughs> Are you a are you real gonna, company? Are you gonna
0: keep are you gonna, <laughs> yeah. keep are you gonna keep
1: it right? Absolutely, absolutely. We, yeah. we cannot we're building propulsion systems and airplanes. We yeah, can do well, this from you could home.
0: Keep, you could keep that area without keeping the physical office space for the infrastructure, you know. Uh,
1: true, but, but I will say there's there's something I found, especially in a startup mode, right? When you when you're a, a steady state company, that's one thing. When you're in a startup mode, even having the finance people oh, sit sure. with the team surrounded by the technology makes a difference and so yeah, to understand I understand really the challenges
0: important. and understand you know how to how to quickly innovate and come up with quick ideas And so um, what about this whole idea that that's been around for a long time but that's really getting a lot of focus right now around diversity and inclusion
1: Well I, I don't know why it's getting a lot of focus now we've always done that that's always been like a yeah. a basis of behavior I mean I, to think for anyone to think, that they can make a good decision without anyone raising a flag and saying, Hey, have you thought about this? Is I believe foolish. Again, that's one of the things I learned in the military. You all there's no such thing that the Israeli military is not a democracy by any means, right? It's a military. But it's very much based on I want to hear my leadership team's opinion before we do something. Because if it's wrong, it's detrimental for mm-hmm. multiple reasons, right? And so let's all have a conversation. Everyone has a voice. It doesn't mean everyone has a a vote, but everyone has a voice. And so raise the flag, raise a concern, raise an idea. The only way to truly do that is to have diversity. Now, I'm not necessarily saying uh, diversity, and and I'll say this uh, uh, bluntly on the face of things. The fact that someone may be uh, with a different colored skin than my own doesn't necessarily make it diverse. If they think the way I do, then it's not diversity. If we all look different, but we sit around the table and we have the exact same socioeconomic upbringing, cultural upbringing, thought process, then we're all a bunch of yes people. Right. The idea of diversity is people who think differently at their core, yeah, right. who behave differently, who are willing to express their different opinions. Now, you get that a lot by having different cultural aspects, et cetera. Absolutely. But it's not just about, oh, I need to have a woman on the table because I need a woman. No. Totally. I want someone who thinks differently from the rest of the leadership team so that we can get a real good set of diverse opinions. We, if you look at MagniX, uh, we're a little over 50 employees now, and we come from over 17 different countries. I'm talking oh my gosh. generation immigrants, wow. not, you know, oh, I'm uh, uh, African-American uh, in my ancestry. No, yes. people who now came from different countries and all fall into this kind of group melding pot, and you get the french and the polish and the israeli and the american and the british and the chinese and the taiwanese you get all that in a room and you get this amazing and all grew up not only in these different countries but in different socioeconomic backgrounds in different cultural upbringings in different environments and you get that in a room and you meld it and the debates and the arguments that come up are amazing I, i am a true believer as we are at magnetics a true believer of debate creates great ideas. And so So we'll have have vocal debates, not it's never personal and it's never unprofessional and it's never just yelling and screaming, but we will get vocal because we're all passionate about what we're doing, but we'll debate our points. Now, once we make a decision after we've been heard and we make a decision, which again, everyone has a voice, not everyone has a vote. Once we make that decision, everyone aligns behind it. And we go forward and make things happen, which is why yeah. we've been able to do what we do. But that aspect of melding and debating is crucial for our
0: success. And how do you personally measure uh, success? Like, you know, I always ask people, like, do you feel successful personally and then professionally with Magniacs? When will you be like, ah, I've accomplished what I set out to do? Oh,
1: um, personally, I think never. That's that's. One of the challenges yeah, I have.
0: Yeah, you got the, the keys, which yeah, I get.
1: I, yeah, I don't think I'll ever say I'm done, uh, which, which is a problem. It's a challenge. Uh, but I do know that uh, I'm on the right path if I feel, for myself, if I feel like I can proudly tell my kids about my day and what's been going on, and they'll understand it, right? They may not always agree. My kids will debate, oh, why are you doing that? That doesn't sound right. Let's have that conversation. But when I feel like I can actually sit down and tell them about it, uh, I feel like I'm on the right path. Two, when employees who leave the company, choose to leave the company, are still proud to say they worked at Magnex. To me, that's a huge success. So having alumni of the company be positive and not, oh, I left because that place was terrible and I never want to work there again. Having people who have left want to come back is a huge uh, point that tells me we're doing something right. And yeah. so th- those are kind of the key elements. Now, of course, you know, add the stand ones, when we'll be profitable, and customers will buy our stuff. That's the obvious one. Those are the measurable ones, yeah. yeah, Those those three to me are the really important ones.
0: Yeah, and so it sounds like, I mean, I would work for you in a second. Like you are just, (laughs) I just love your leadership style. I love, I mean, I, I knew you before the podcast, but I feel like I just feel super inspired by your way of thinking. And so how do you set yourself up in any way, because I always like to get nuggets of time management or just kind of rituals. How do you set yourself up for a good week um, to make sure that you get the most out of your time?
1: Uh, so one, I use my personally my inbox as my to-do list. Uh, I I I uh, may or may not have some OCD. I don't know, uh, but you know the putting chairs back to the t- yeah. table and, and my email. So my inbox is my to-do list, and every day, morning and evening, I start the day and the, the day with going through my inbox. Okay, what do I need to do? And there's only a few options. I either have to do what's there, right? Uh, can you do this? Can you send me this? Can you do it? So I have to either do it and get it off the inbox. Off inbox, I have to delegate, which is an important, crucial part I found of a leader is the ability and willingness to delegate, mm-hmm. or follow up to that delegation, or three. I have to answer with a, oh, no, we're not going to do this, or we're not going to take action, but that in itself is taking action. Things on the inbox just can't sit there. Otherwise, you haven't done anything. And so that's one way I I position myself on a daily and weekly basis. So that's one. Two, I literally every day remind myself why we're doing what we're doing every day. Uh, One of them is things like this in my background, looking at these pictures. It takes a second But seeing that and saying, my God, this is real. This is not about a CGI video or about what could be. This is about doing it now. So that's a a second thing I do. And then a third thing I do, and I mentioned this before, but every dinner, we talk around the dinner table. We always have dinner as a family, and we talk about our day, including me. It's like, what happened at work? Oh, this happened, that happened. I had this challenge, that challenge. Now, I won't get too technical, et cetera, To me, what that does is, when I have to simplify what I went through so that my kids and my wife can understand it and contribute to the conversation, right? We're not gonna talk about, was there any EMI uh, interference in the Maggie Drive? No, you have to bring it down to a level that a a non-technical person can converse. By doing that, I start to myself think about, oh, wait a minute, why didn't I simplify this problem to begin with? Here's a potential solution. So it really helps for me solidify ideas that later I can send to the team, and the team I look in and say, Roy, you can't oversimplify it like this. Okay, yeah. great, but at least I thought and we tried. And not, yeah. oh, why didn't we do it later on when you think about it? So we, those types also, of activities yeah,
0: I love those things. And you're also creating future leaders because if your kids are solving problems before like getting right into the workforce in some sort of significant way, um, they're already going in with a huge advantage just having thought about business and business problems that you're that people face every day.
1: I think the first lesson they already learned is the CEO's job is never done.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're like, Dad, get off your phone. Get off yeah. your
1: phone, Dad. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And so my ultimate question for you is what fuels you, the OCD and the, the drive and passion, but like, what's your kind of legacy? <laughs> Tough one. Wow.
1: I, I, yeah, this is a, this is a, a tough one. For me, uh, my legacy will be when my grandkids are proud of what their grandfather did.
0: Yeah, I like that. I just got chills. I'm so glad to see you. Um, I'm wishing you so much success. It's really super exciting to see what you're building. And I love watching it. I'm seeing the press come out, and um, hopefully people who are, are hearing this are i um, gonna even take away some of the leadership ideas, but also um, every little part that we can all take on you know, making the world a more efficient and uh, more friendly to the climate uh, place to be. So thank you, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Yeah, good to see you. Yep, definitely. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review